Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best coaches in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier men's lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. Now, this show is about you, and we're here to help you become the best man you can be in every area of your life. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some free ebooks and drills and exercises that'll help you become more charismatic and confident by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you're new to the show but you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, listen to The Art of Charm Toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. That's where we've got the fundamentals of dating and attraction, such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, including some episodes on breakups and relationship management. That's where all the basics are, so get a handle on that first. We've got boot camps running every single month here in Hollywood, California. Details on those at theartofcharm.com. Looking forward to meeting all you guys here at AOC. All right, ready for another one? Drinking a little Macallan scotch. I think I mentioned this before, but they sent me a nice box of scotch that included several bottles. So uh, I got to give Macallan a shout out. Really, really good stuff. I'm enjoying the 18 right now, which I highly recommend. But sometimes sometimes the 12 is called for, but not right now. We're going to keep it classy. We're talking with Ari Mizell of lessdoing.com. We're going to talk about how much twins cost. And uh, I mean kids, so get your minds out of the gutter. Learning trades and partying hard, then getting Crohn's disease and having it all come crashing down. We're going to talk about how he dismantled Western medicine and cured himself of Crohn's disease, which is pretty impressive and amazing. And a lot of people, I, I think, are struggling to do the same. We're also going to talk about self-tracking, finding out which days and times you're most productive and learning to really lean into those times of focus and why to-do lists are a recipe for failure and give you some mostly free alternatives, creating an external brain to connect your brilliant ideas automatically and some productivity hacks to crush it and save time as well as a little sleep hacking tip that I've never heard before that I'm going to start using tonight. So enjoy this one with Ari Mizell of lessdoing.com. He's two and a quarter. I have twin 13-month-olds. Jeez. Hands full. Mm-hmm. Your, mm-hmm. Wife, your wife doesn't work then, aside from No, that. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't let her leave the kitchen. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't, with all those kids, man, you can't even, I mean, what would you do? No, I, yeah, we have, uh, we have, a, we have a system sort of worked out, but yeah, she does, she doesn't work right now. Excellent. We have a lot of kids. Yeah. What, <laughs> ma- what made you want to have so many kids? Uh, well, we wanted to have three. We, we always wanted to have three. Um, and, um, we had to do IVF actually for the twins because uh, we found out during the pregnancy with the first son that we were both carriers of cystic fibrosis. Whoa. Which is fucking scary. Yeah, yeah. of course. And he, my Ben, was born without anything, which is like a one in four chance, which is crazy. So he's like, we got very lucky. But the second time, we were like, we, you know, we don't want to take the chance. And they can actually screen it out, which is amazing. Um, and when you go through the whole process and she's getting these huge shots in her ass, like every day, like she was like, I don't want to do this twice if it's not going to work or I don't want to do this again. If it's not work. So, you know, to increase the chances we put two eggs in and we're a very fertile couple. So they both took and, uh, we had, we got twins out of it. But, uh, in, in a way I feel like we've sent a, it, it goes along with my whole less doing efficiency thing. We kind of skipped the line. <laughs> yeah. You skipped the line. I like it. You know what? How, do, how much does it cost to throw out a pair of twins these days? What do twins run these days? With the IVF or the delivery? The, the, the IVF. Uh, I think it was like 20. Not bad. Plus delivery. Plus the yeah. shipping and handling. 
Yeah, that's right. Well, and the delivery, I think, is another 20 but insurance makes it, you know, it's like 700 bucks with all the insurance stuff. Nice. Okay. Good to know. So yes. 2100 bucks for two kids, I'll no, take it. No, 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 no. 20, no. 20, sorry, $21,000 for two kids, I'll take it. Yeah, basically. Yeah. My girlfriend's looking at me like, do not get any ideas. But she has no <laughs> idea what we're really talking about right now. Well, so, I mean, you know what? I mean, obviously, you know, all kidding aside, but it's better than, you know, a lifetime of having a possibly sick child. Oh, man. No joke. Uh, of course. And it's cool that you had twins because now you have three kids and you only had two pregnancies. So, right. I mean, the only better system would it be if you had triplets. Well, the funniest thing is that um, my wife really wanted to have a girl at some point, but um, because of the way that they did this, where they did all the screening and stuff and they had to, you know, remove this, this cystic fibrosis, we had a sheet uh, that like a printout and we knew what each embryo was in terms of boy and girl. And so, and we just told them to basically put in the healthiest two embryos. So when they called us to tell us, they're like, okay, it, you know, it took, it looks good. Um, and I was like, well, you know, which numbers did you put in? They're like, oh, you know, it was like 11 and 17. So I look and they're both boys. It's <laughs> like, sorry, honey. Yeah. Oh, well, you, you so, know, you, it's kind of funny because it's like shopping for kids and you're like, oh, I didn't get to pick that. And it's like, this is usually handled by nature. So you're right. You know, it'll leave something. Yeah, something. Sure. exactly. And I'm sure it's like, oh, well, you didn't have a girl. I mean, you can adopt. It's not like you. I mean, you, you might as well get two sets of bunk beds, right? No, fuck no. It's, this is what I keep saying to my wife. A, a girl is still a fourth child. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, maybe often overlooked, right? Yes. So tell us about what you do. I mean, you know, we're jumping right in here. Lessdoing.com is about doing less, and I see you've taken that to the extreme by having two kids at once, so props on living your message. <laughs> well, it depends how you look at it. <laughs> yeah, you less doing, but now you have an extra kid, so maybe you're more doing. Yes. Well, it's, a, it's really the, the whole thing is less doing, more living. So I would say that I'm living a lot. I agree. All right. Excellent. So how did you get into this? I mean, what were you doing before and what prompted you to dive into the less doing, more living? Did you have any less living on your, on your horizon? Is that what sparked it? Yeah, actually, that is a good way of looking at it. So uh, basically, I've, I was working in construction uh, about 13 years ago and I was doing this project in upstate New York. Uh, I was working my ass off basically like 14 hours a day, learning every construction trade, running the job, and just not taking care of my body. I was smoking a pack a day. Wait, wait, let's, let's back up. You learned every construction trade? That sounds like a virtually impossible. Well, yeah. Um, basically what happened was I was 20 years old, and I graduated school a year early, and I went to visit a friend in upstate New York, and he's like, oh, you got to see these buildings. It looks just like Soho 30 years ago. And, I grew up in Soho in, in New York, and my parents were actually part of the group that got Soho named Soho, and they, my dad's an art dealer. has been there for 40-something years. Really? So I, I, yeah, so I've always only known, like, loft living. So I saw these old buildings that were these cigar warehouses from the 1880s, and I'm like, I'm 20 years old. I'm like, yeah, I can make lofts here. This is awesome. And then I made an offer to buy them that day because it was, like, the cheapest market ever. And um, basically the deal was that anybody that worked on the job had to teach me their trade. So I spent the next three years learning and doing like every construction trade. And I actually can say like almost pretty much every construction trade because when you're using an old, when you're working with an old building, like there's things that you get to do that you would never do with new buildings. And I, you know, removed these vessels with my bare hands and did roofing and all sorts of historic renovation on brickwork. I, I really learned the business. And what I realized at the time, at least, I think it was like the only smart decision I made at the time was that if I was going to be not only respected but not taken advantage of by the guys working for me, this was the only way to deal with that 
because I was 20 years old and I had, you know, third generation bricklayers working for me who were in their 60s. They weren't going to take any crap from me. Yeah, no so, doubt. <laughs> so they taught me, you know, and it was amazing. It was, it was the hardest I've ever worked in my life and I destroyed my body in a lot of ways, but I also, it, it's, the ba- you know, I'm still a real estate developer too. So it's sort of the basis for what I do all the time. Interesting. So how, co- how did you end up going from, hey, I'm going to learn construction to I'm going to destroy my body? What happened there? Well, they kind of go hand in hand, honestly. You know, so I was 20 years old. I was not particularly into like health and wellness, basically. I was working 14 hours a day. I was stressing myself just to the max. because I, I was in $3 million of debt by the time I was 23. Uh, and Wait, I was how, how much? $3 million. How do you even – how was that even allowed? Well, so <laughs> Binghamton, which is where I did this project, is a is a very depressed market. It's it's it was like it, it's where IBM started. Like it's a really historically important city in, in America in history, actually. But and actually, it was the cigar capital of America at one point, which is which is it's kind of surprising. But uh, it, it went through this horrible economic downturn. So this was a really big deal for Binghamton. I was going to do this major project, and so the mayor basically helped me get a unsecured line of credit when I was 21 uh, to, from the local bank. So, uh, yeah, I ran, I ran up quite a, quite a bill, basically. Wow, that's insane. I mean, is that, I feel like they've fixed that loophole, but maybe not. Uh, well, I mean, I paid it back. You know, it's not like I, I just like did it and ran away. But it, it was, yeah, it was a lot of debt for someone that age to, yeah. to care. I mean, that's a lot of debt for a company, unless yeah. it's a multinational <laughs> one. So. <laughs> Well, yeah, so that was part of the learning curve, I guess. Yeah, holy cow. Okay. But, well, but so, you know, so I'm, I'm under a lot of stress, obviously, from that. I'm smoking a pack a day. I'm eating fast food at least twice a day, drinking pretty much every night with the crew. I'd go out with them after and, and drink. And then, you know, carousing about town, basically. I was still a 20-year-old, so, or 21. Like a hell of a lot of fun, though. I'm not going to lie. Oh, it was a ton of fun. And, and I was in the – so Binghamton is also like – it's a smallish town, but it's also sort of an important city. So I was in the paper every day pretty much. I was on the news all the time. It was really like – it was fun. It was really fun. It was kind of a – I mean it was an unbelievable experience. Wow. So what happened? You, you got sick of it or you literally got sick? What, what happened after that? So I, yeah, so I, I, didn't, I didn't get sick of it per se. I mean I basically finished the project and then I started selling the, the units, which, you know, that, that was part of the problem is like I, 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 in my mind, when I started the project, I was like, you know, I'm going to sell these units in, in six months and be a millionaire. But it ended up being more like five years to sell all the units. So that was, that was part of it. But I finished the project. I kind of ended up just sort of randomly. I, I ended up meeting the girl who would be my wife now. And literally like a month after we met, I think it was just, I don't know, my body had, had enough and I got the diagnosis of Crohn's disease. And so, so what is that? Most people yeah. don't know what that is. Right. So, so Crohn's is a chronic inflammatory condition that affects the digestive tract. It's not very well understood. It's, it's considered to be incurable. Uh, and it basically causes you to get scarring and chronic inflammation in your intestines, your stomach. And the, the real issue is that besides the fact that it massively increases your likeliness of getting some sort of cancer, either colon cancer or, or rectal cancer or any of that stuff, it also basically builds up these like strictures, these scar tissues. So you actually can get blockages of food and then you end up needing surgery, which fortunately I was able to avoid, but that's, that's very common. So I was taking an enormous amount of medicine. They put me on 16 pills a day. Of, 16 pills a day. Yeah. Including a leukemia drug. 
uh, which is which is one of the most effective treatments actually still for it. It's something called six MP, which is I felt like it was like a military test program. Yeah, jeez. So it, it it was really debilitating. I was already so I was like forty pounds heavier than I am now, which a lot of that was was really inflammation. Honestly, um, I was on the that drug, the six MP, which was giving me like morning sickness every day and made my hair start thinning. I was on systemic steroids, which just turned me into a friggin' beast, um, and I was just aggressive and like peeing ten times a night. Jeez. And uh, I was getting sicker. I was getting sicker and sicker uh, until you know. And I was I spent a bunch of nights in the hospital, and one particularly bad night, I just I, I didn't think I was going to make it out. So I did, fortunately, and and I sp- spiked a hundred and five degree fever for two days, and then when I came out of that delirium, I basically was like, I got to do something different. I got to change. And I went on this long journey of self-tracking and self-experimentation. And after four months, I was off my meds completely. And two months later, I competed in my first triathlon. Good for you, man. That's, that's, how did you go from one end to the other? I mean, that's actually kind of almost doesn't, doesn't make sense. Yeah. It, basically, by doing exactly the opposite of what Western medicine was telling me to do. Okay, so so uh, what were they were telling you to take tons of pills and die in a hospital bed, and you were thinking, no thanks. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, uh, basically, you know, as with a lot of illnesses, a lot. So so I, I'm an EMT now, and I, I get to see a lot of sort of different sides of this, of sort of the chronic illness and the acute illness, and I and Western medicine is amazing at treating acute illness, and you know, if you get stabbed or you break an arm or you know, you need an immediate surgery for something like there's no better place to be dealing with it. But for chronic illness, there, a lot of the, the treatments tend to deal with the symptoms and they don't work on lifestyle change so much. And it, it's, it's like a known thing that doctors don't have a very good grasp of nutrition. And even GI doctors, you know, gastroenterologists who deal with digestive disorders and Crohn's being a digestive disorder, they tell you that food doesn't really matter, uh, which is crazy to me. So there were a few things that had happened along the way, one of which was that one incident that I had that put me in the hospital was after this big barbecue meal at a restaurant called uh, Dinosaur Barbecue. And I ended up in the hospital that night, and my doctor's going through what I ate, which was unusual, by the way, because that's not often a question that comes up. And, right. and I've, I've worked with several Crohn's clients now and helped them. I've, you know, I've replicated my results in like over a dozen Crohn's clients now, so this comes up a lot. But... I'm like, okay, so I had the, the brief brisket and the baked beans and the, you know, the bake and this and that, that. And then, no, it's not it. It's not it. And then the last thing I said was, oh, yeah, and I also had this iceberg lettuce salad. And he was like, that's probably it. It was probably the iceberg lettuce because it's fibrous and it was hard to digest. So That's not what I would have thought. Right. So in my head, I'm, you know, it's a very scary disease. And it's a young person's disease, too, which is kind of crappy. And... So, you know, crappy, like yeah. most people don't want to talk about, right, well, no, people don't want to talk about it. So my response to that was to literally develop a fear of greens for like six months. So I like, have that, but I don't think it's for the same reason. <laughs> well, I, I mean, if there was like shredded lettuce on a plate, like I would literally have like a panic attack for six months after that. So uh, part of this sort of epiphany was that I basically felt like, look, my, my intestines are a muscle. You know, and I need to, and they've been weakened because as soon as you have an attack, like they put you on the brat diet, which is the bread, rice, applesauce, and toast diet, you know, which is like carbs galore, carbs and sugar and, and nothing. So it's like, no, it's, that's not 
what you need. You actually need to work that muscle. You need to make sure that your body is still functioning properly. So I started eating like kale and mustard greens and grains, like whole grains, really, you know, rough stuff that was nutrient dense and, and basically gave my body a workout and it was digesting fine. And I was starting to feel better. Wait, wait. Okay. So you, you got the scarring from drinking and things like that and working it out with hard vegetables made it go away. I mean, that seems... No, 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 no. I'm that's lo- obvious. Yeah, I'm, I'm confused because I'm thinking how that's like such an obvious solution, but I don't understand the cause. No, no, no. So it's over, first of all, it's oversimplifying. That's not, that's not quite it. I, I got the scarring from eating like crappy Chinese food basically four times in a week, you know, okay. um, and just bad food that basically messes up your, micro, your, your gut biome and causes inflammation and just is not meant to be like properly digested, honestly. So that, that was it. Also smoking. Um, and no, the drinking didn't really have a big effect except for probably caused me to go to the bathroom a lot more than I should have. Uh-huh. But uh, it, that, that was what had – and also, which I would come to learn, a big component of it was stress. So – yeah, the, the, the vegetables and the veg, – basically, I went vegetarian for like six months, and then I started introducing fish. But essentially, what ended up – the two main things that ended up being the most helpful and what really, I believe, sort of cured me was lots and lots of good fats. So like grass-fed butter and olive oil and wild-caught salmon and pastured egg yolks and uh, grass-fed beef and like all these really good fats, uh, which are really anti-inflammatory – and then the really big component of it was was stress, which is actually how less doing was born. Wow. Okay. So the stress is, I think, where we might want to focus because I think a lot of people are probably going to want to talk to you about curing their Crohn's, but this isn't directly a health, especially a gut health show. Right. Not that I mind talking about it, but okay, you were just stressed out beyond all belief, but everyone always says that they're overwhelmed and stressed. So does that really lead to unhealthy people who get sick a lot? I mean, that might be a dumb question in context here. Well, it, so it's not a dumb question at all. And yes, so that, by the way, that's the word that I hear from people every single day yes. is that they're overwhelmed. Uh, and stress, chronic stress causes inflammation in your body. There's just no question about it. So being chronically stressed is going to lead you to get sick in some way or another. Basically, you're going to, you know, at the least level, maybe you're going to get depressed because it's just totally going to mess up your, your, the biome of your gut, but the microbiome of your gut. But on a higher level, you could develop rheumatoid arthritis symptoms. You could develop Crohn's. You can develop all sorts of other issues. And, or you could just get fat, you know, which has its own problems too. So stress, and I mean, this is not my opinion. Like this is a proven thing. It just causes, it's inflammatory. Stress is inflammatory. So basically, I, I was doing good, and I, and I had competed in this triathlon, and I, I did it, and I was good. Um, I was also doing a lot of, like, I did the Insanity workout program and lost 22 pounds in two months. Like, I was really getting myself in better shape. But then I set my sights on Ironman France, and while I'm training for that, I realized, hey, you know, look, I'm, I'm doing really good. I figured out the nutrition. I figured out the supplements. I figured out the fitness, but there's still this large element of stress, and my response to that was to create this system of productivity called Less Doing with the goal of helping to free up as much of people's time as possible so that they could reclaim their minds and do the things that they want to do. All right, back to the show. Wow, okay, interesting. So I, I guess I'm still sort of 
not sure how that would work. It just seems like if it's uncurable, how come? How did you cure it? I mean, I, I'm still kind of like hung up. <laughs> so there's, I mean, I've, and I've had sort of flack about that. And to me, okay, so this is the thing with Crohn's. So there have been other cases of people who have been in remission for 20 years, and then you know, then it came back basically. And I've had some pretty violent comments actually on YouTube about the suggestion that I'm even saying that I cured it basically, but. First of all, I never said like I cured it. I said basically that I feel that I am cured. And to me, it's a state of mind, honestly, because yes, it could come back someday. I don't think it ever will because I take care of myself now and I eat really well because not only do I not want to get Crohn's, but I eat to like fuel my mind and my body, which is something I had never sort of knew about before that I could feel this good and, you know, be this productive essentially. But if it were to ever come back in me, I would know how to handle it. I would never be a slave to my body again, and in that, and I'm never. I would never be on 16 pills a day ever again. So in that regard, I believe that I'm cured. Interesting. So how do we start this whole process of, and not not necessarily even with Crohn's, etc. But how do we get to the point where you you seem obviously very driven? You know, you create a lot of things for yourself, opportunities slash diseases, of course. <laughs> Hopefully, more <laughs> of the former. Um, what would you want to teach about this? Because, like I said, a lot of the guys listening, they don't have Crohn's, thankfully. Um, but what did you learn from this that might be a little bit more meta that we can apply? Well, it really – so it basically the stress is the center component of that. But on a higher level, it, you know, it starts with the stress. But the whole system of less doing that I created is all about being more effective. You know, so basically what I, I teach people how to optimize, automate, and outsource everything in their lives, including their health in order to be more effective. So whatever it is that you're doing, whether you want to be uh, you, you know, a, a triathlete or a better father and husband or a better business person or all three. And to be honest, half of my clients, well, I should say more than half of my clients are women. It's just about being more effective, using your time better. And what I really try to do is basically give people the headspace to come up with those new and amazing ideas that have sort of been obscured by all the crap going on in their lives. Okay, and how do we start to do that? I mean, that's obviously a tall order, but it's it's a very desirable thing. Headspace is uh, prime real estate. Yes, of course. Well, so the main the, so there's nine fundamentals to the system, but the the first one is called the eighty twenty rule. But I really don't use it the way that it's sort of historically been used. Basically, I so whenever I, I can ask you this actually because it's, it's nighttime. So, do you remember what you had for breakfast this morning? Nothing. Okay, great. Do you remember how many emails you sent last Tuesday? Of course not. Okay, good. So maybe that doesn't matter, but maybe it does. The thing is, is that all of this stuff is happening to us all the time. There's things that go on while we're working, while we're sleeping, while we're working out, while we're talking. To, there's just thousands of things happening to us all the time. And unfortunately, the result of a lot of that is that we become blissfully unaware of all the things going on in our life. We just, there's this like loss of self-awareness which is sort of just exemplary of just like the fact that we have not evolved biologically as quickly as we have technologically. It just is the way it is. So the, for me, that 80-20 rule is really a reminder to constantly be self-tracking. You know, and it can be as basic as having a Fitbit so that you know how many steps you've taken, but you can take it to other levels of, you know, having rescue time on your computer so you know how many emails you sent in a day, and it can tell you at the end of the week what your most productive days are 
which allows you to then start to plan your weeks and days around those times to actually use those times most efficiently, which is a big thing that I do. Is that, That's interesting. Yeah. I didn't even think about the fact that I have more productive days, which is obviously the case for everybody. Yeah, and, the, and a lot of times, I mean, there's some things that are more obvious than others. That one usually shocks people. Like for me, I think up until, like the most recent thing I think is that my, my most productive day is Tuesdays and my least productive day is Fridays. The Friday makes sense to me. The Tuesday, I have no idea why that's more productive than other days. But that's really good to know because I don't schedule important things for Fridays. Uh, and by that same regard, I know that I can't do creative work before 8 o'clock at night. I don't know exactly why. It could have something to do with the kids being asleep or you know just being the end of the day. But if I need to write something creatively or I need to do anything creatively, I, re- I just push it off to after 8 o'clock at night, which is really freeing because I don't have to try to slug through at 11 in the morning when I'm really not wired to do that thing. Interesting. So, wow. Late, after 8 o'clock at night, I mean, geez, are you a heavy caffeine guy? How come you work so late? 8 o'clock is late. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, ba- well, basically, so no, I'm not a heavy caffeine guy at all. I, I have, a, I have a, a coffee probably once every 10 days, and that's, it's always a bulletproof coffee, but once every 10 days. Um, I, my work schedule is essentially 9 a.m. to 2 p.m., and then 8 p.m. to 10-ish or so, because that, that in-between is just time with the kids, basically. So oh, yeah, I, that makes I, sense. I, Pat yeah, Flynn's so. like that, too. Just works yeah. after dark because he wants to hang with his kids. Yeah, basically, like I, I just put Ben to sleep before I got on a call with you. So um, that's sort of the, the way that my, my day shakes out. But what's really great about the 8 p.m., what I know about that is that, and this is one of the things that I work on with people about like prioritization. I'm very, very against to-do lists, which I can explain. But if my number one priority for the day for some reason is to write like this article for some website or for my own blog, whatever. Uh, at 11 o'clock, if I happen to find myself with a free hour that I hadn't planned on for some reason, that's not the time for me to even attempt to write that article because either I won't write it or if I do write it, it will be crap. Like that 11 o'clock hour is the time for me to do the busy work, the admin work. And that's, again, very freeing because I know I don't have to worry about it. I can just wait till you know, nighttime and then it'll just flow. So even though that's technically my number one priority for the day, I'm, I shouldn't attack that first necessarily just because it's 11 a.m. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That that makes sense. And we sort of talked a little bit before. Well, wait a minute. Why are to do lists uh, such a recipe for failure? What's up with that? <laughs> okay. So uh, this basically takes us back to the 1920s. Uh, there was a really? Russian doctor. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. This is to do lists will totally destroy your productivity. So, well, okay. First of all, most people have like 12. 20, you know, sometimes I've, I've seen over 100 things on the to-do list, and whether you're using Post-it notes or Google, well, okay, do you, what do you use for your to-do list? Unfortunately, I used to use paper, which was awesome, and now I use, and I know where this, I know you're going to hate it, text edit on Mac, which means that I have an unlimited amount of space. That's pretty do. bad. Yeah, it's awful, and I'll tell you what, I went over it today, and I was like, there's shit that's been on here for a year, more, longer. Okay, so the only th- the only thing worse than that is a whiteboard for why for a to do list for a to do list. Yeah, because why is a whiteboard like, so bad? Because it's a big like fuck you sign right in the in your face. That's true. Like, hey, look at all the stuff you haven't done and probably won't do today either. You slacker. Okay, so basically, yeah. you, you so you just answered the question basically. So I'll, I'll really quickly. So this the, in the the twenties there was this Russian doctoral student named Luma Zigarnik and. Without going through the whole story, she basically determined that there was a separate part of our brain that processed open-ended information and 
we have this need to finish things, basically, and, close, and have closure. So when you see this to-do list with all of these things that you can't do right now, that Zigarnik effect basically goes like on red alert, and all you see is the things that you're not getting done, like you just said. Great. So then you feel, that's why you feel overwhelmed, dot, 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 Crohn's disease, and you're dead. <laughs> More or less. Yeah. Um, so, the, and this is the thing, is that a lot of things on the to-do list are things you can't do right now because, A, you're waiting for somebody else to do something first, or B, because it's just too big of a project. Like, I, I've now seen seven times on someone's to-do list, write book. Oh, that's terrible. Ter- okay, good. So yeah, I'm like, raise so kids, send to college, right? Like... You know, retire happy. Yeah, that's a terrible, write book is awful. Okay, I'm not that bad. I just, I put, <laughs> see, the problem with mine is I put ideas like, oh, you know what? I should, and it's like, no, I should delegate that to our marketing guy because that's like a three-week-long thing for him to do. Or even a, even if it's a day-long thing for him to do, it's because I don't know how to do it. So it stays there, and it stays there, and it stays there. And then one day I finally get drunk and delete it, <laughs> you know, because I don't want to look at it anymore. Well, that's the thing is progress begets progress, and sometimes you just have to like move that needle a little bit. But but without so basically get rid of your to do list. You should just have things come to you at the time that you can best deal with them. And there's a really great service for that if you want to give like a practical tip to the listeners. Uh, there's a website or a service called followup.cc. Yeah, yeah, we talked about that before. Yeah, so it's amazing. Uh, and basically, at its heart, it's an email reminder service. So you send an email to anyone you want, and then you CC or BCC any time period at follow.cc. So I might send you an email and say, you know, like, looking forward to talking next week, I'll prepare over the day before, and then I might BCC three days at follow.cc. And in three days, that email is going to come back to me, and it's now going to include a snooze functionality. So where that becomes really cool is that if I have something to do, I can actually look at that now and say, well, I think Friday at 10 a.m. is going to be the right time to do that. And, you know, maybe I'm right or wrong, but Friday at 10 a.m. comes along and I'm on a phone call that I wasn't expecting to be on. That email comes in. It's something that I need to do. And I can say, now that I'm, you know, three days or four days wiser, basically, I can say, all right, well, I'm going to be off this call in 15 minutes and I'll deal with that. Or I can say, you know, a lot of things have happened this week. Like, this doesn't necessarily matter as much. I can push this off to Tuesday and that'll be the better time to do it. So with me, with my writing and stuff, anytime something comes in where somebody needs me to do writing or something that's creative, I literally, I don't even read it so much as I just forward it to 8 p.m. at fall.cc. Interesting. And then, I, and then I forget about it. Yeah. I use Boomerang. It's very similar. Where I'm Boomerang, like, exactly the same thing, except that you have to, the only, the only reason I recommend fall.cc, no, 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 it's not even that. The only reason I recommend fall.cc is that it's platform independent, whereas Boomerang, you have to be in Gmail. Oh, that's true. You know what? That is kind of a pain when I'm like on my iPhone and I can't Boomerang something very easily. So you can use followup.cc from your iPhone. Okay. Well, we're going to link to followup.cc and to Boomerang uh, from the show notes as well. So, okay, I I got that. The to-do list, terrible. Even the Soviets hate it. Uh, <laughs> they weren't Soviets back then. It's all good. What What is this about creating an external brain? We sort of mentioned that before, you know, while we were off air. I want to hear more about that because, you know, I, I like my brain. But, hey, if I can make another one, I'm all ears. And you you, you have three kids, so you know how to make brains. <laughs> uh, lots of fish oil. Um, yeah, so, so basically, so the idea for this came about sort of through a long process through high school and college. And basically, so I, I had three companies before I graduated college, uh, high school, actually. Um, and I had this book of ideas for business. And I was getting like a new business idea pretty much every week. And, and most of them were terrible. But I wrote, I wrote them all down. And then in college, those ideas started coming less frequently, like once every month. 
And after college, they just stopped. And I kind of just accepted that it was like the end of my creativity. I was like, all right, I'm 20 years old. I'm like out of ideas. Uh, but of course, I didn't take into account that I was working my butt off and not giving myself not only not time to think, but there's no way that I could have done anything with those ideas. So essentially what this is is that if you have an idea in your head, you got to get it out of your head as quickly as possible. And you could use paper. I personally really like using Evernote. Sure. And Evernote, what you, so you use Evernote? Uh, sometimes, yes, I do, but it probably not even remotely in the most effective way. Well, basically, you have to overuse it. So the problem is, is that the human brain is great at coming up with ideas. It's terrible at holding on to them. So you don't have, you, you basically, you have to get in this mode where you don't judge the ideas. So if you have an idea, get it out of your head. Just write it down, put it in Evernote. I, I mean, I personally love Evernote. Uh, but get it out of your head because you don't know if it's a good or bad idea. You can't possibly know if it's going to be a relevant idea ever. And you just have to get that idea flow because ideas need flow. You know, if you've ever seen the Simpsons episode where Mr. Burns was diagnosed with everything, <laughs> you ever see that? No. Okay, so he's at the Mayo Clinic, and the doctor has this little doorway with all these fuzzy little creatures representing various diseases, and they can't get through the door, so he's not getting sick. Ideas are like that. You literally need to get your ideas into a single file line and get them out of your head because nine bad ideas may add up to a tenth good one simply because they made, like, they come together to create that idea or because they literally got out of the way of that good idea. So just get those ideas going. And why Evernote works so great is that once you start to use it a lot, it, it, like if you're using Chrome or Firefox or Safari, it has a, a, a web, an Evernote web clipper that you can clip articles or YouTube videos or whatever, but it'll start to show you relevant notes from your Evernote, and that's where like the aha moments just start coming all the time. So whether you you clip something and it shows your relevant notes, or you search in Google and it will show your relevant notes, it's amazing. So I have like ten thousand notes in Evernote now. So anytime I search for anything, there will be something that I found three days ago, something that I found three months ago, and something from a year ago that at the time I just found interesting enough to push a button for two seconds, but I didn't necessarily know what they were for or why they were interesting. And now it's like I pulled this information from the depth of my brain to get these ideas together. Interesting. Wow. So that that's cool. It does a lot of it, it creates the the connections for you essentially. Essentially, right? so that is yeah. The external brain. Okay. Right, and and it's also just very freeing. And I, you know, for a very specific example, because this is like the one instance where I can't use Evernote is in the shower. And most people have experienced getting a good idea in the shower. Just, I think so. In fact, there's science behind that, right? Because Yes. Someone got funded at Stanford to do a study on it. You want to talk about that? Because I've always tried to talk about that, and I, always, I feel like I always get it wrong. Well, basically, if you're in a situation where you're warm and comfortable, you're going to be more creative. And, and also, if you're physically naked, you tend to be more emotionally and, and mentally like uninhibited, basically. I didn't even know that one was a factor. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, so once, I should work. Good thing I work naked most of the day anyway here in my, my I mean, that's studio. Why, that's why I'm naked right now. That's yeah, that makes two of us. Well, that turned, <laughs> that turned the corner quick. <laughs> but in my shower, I have something called Aquanotes, which is a waterproof post-it pad that uh, people use for scuba diving usually. So I've written you know three or four pretty decent ideas down in there. It's mostly just notes between my wife and I, but. Uh, it's, you know, everyone's had that idea in the shower and like, okay, I'm going to hold on to this idea and they repeat it and they repeat it and as soon as they open the door to the shower, the yeah. idea is gone. Right. And that sucks because not only did you maybe lose a good idea, but you're just like, ah, damn it. Like I, <laughs> I lost the idea. So 
it's, it's really important. And you start to do that and you start to trust it. Because the truth is a lot of stuff that we think about is not relevant and will never be relevant. But just get it out somewhere safe so you can be like, okay, I can stop thinking about that now and I can move on. And that's where you really start to create that headspace. Wow, okay. That makes perfect sense, actually. I like that. And uh, I definitely come up with a ton of ideas in the shower. I don't actually write them down, but I am pretty good at remembering them. But it is a huge pain in the ass. I, I will... I will admit that I, you know, when you leave the shower and you do forget, you go, oh, man, and it bugs you for the rest of the day. Yeah, so get Aquanotes. So what about, all right, maybe we should link to that. What's it called again? Aquanotes. It's just oh. a, it's like a, it's usually used for scuba diving, but it's just like a waterproof post-it pad with, um, with suction cups on it. Scuba diving? Are, are people really down there like, I need to take notes? I mean, I don't dive, so maybe that's like a really common problem. Um, I think that uh, most people would use it for uh, communicating with other people that they're scuba diving with. Uh, that makes way more sense. Although I guess you could be down there doing research and observing things or something too. Yeah, you could be. I mean, you could be getting a fish's number or something. Yeah, exactly. So what about other forms of productivity? I mean, you're extremely obviously linear or nonlinear but uh, efficient. I don't know where linear came from. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just make that, making it up as usual. Um, you've always got the biohacking down. I mean – do you start to then automate a lot of the other things? Because usually when people use Evernote, they're big into like outsourcing and automating and this and that. Right. So, so my, all, my overarching framework is to optimize, automate, and outsource. And it's really important in that order. I do a ton of outsourcing. But if you outsource an inefficient task, it does not make it more efficient. That pipe will back up basically. So you have to start with the optimization, which is where you're really identifying the processes that you go through on a regular basis. And this is... This goes along with the external brain. It's what I call creating the manual of you. Basically, every one of us goes through processes on a daily basis, and or usually on a daily basis, but even if it's like weekly, they're repetitive. And we have this autopilot mode in our brains. It's uh, Daniel Kahneman wrote about this. So we have like system one and system two, and our brains are very lazy in some ways. So we have these shortcuts. You know, you just do it. Um, paying a bill is a really good example. If I told you, you know, to pay or so I have to pay a bill. Like I just go do it, even if it takes seven minutes. Like I don't even think about it. I would just do it. But if you actually break it down and think about the steps required to do that action, the average that I've seen for paying a bill is twenty-seven steps. Wow. So yeah. So my and, and for me it was twenty-seven steps, and now it's nine steps that's completely automated and outsourced. But I had to start with that identification, and that's and you know just to give you an idea, like that's. Go to the you know the Bank of America website and log in with this username and password and go to this section for the paying bill and you know pay with this pay this person and then for the physical bill scan it and then put it into Dropbox and then send it to my accountant and you know whatever like there's all it, it becomes very easily 27 steps and it's a good example of sort of how the optimized automate outsource works so I started with that and right away with the 27 steps I could immediately just say okay, well, 22 and 23 are kind of redundant and 14 to 15 doesn't really make sense. So I was able to get it down to like 22 steps without really doing any other work. And right away, it's like, okay, that's, you know, 25% more efficient. And I have a checklist now that I can follow to be as efficient as possible. Nice. I love it. I, I do something very similar where I hand them all to my girlfriend and they vanish. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And then you're bankrupt three days later. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> three days later. That's an unfortunate side effect of, of how that has worked out. Um, oh, you wanted me to pay these? Oh, I thought we were shredding. Um, my bad. Um, <laughs> now back to the good stuff.
So, all right, leave us with one last gem, Ari. Drop it on us. Drop us uh, your best in any category. Okay, well, th- those are some of my best, so I'll give you a, uh, a biohacking one. Yeah, give us some second-rate shit, then, if you can't give us <laughs> No, it's not second-rate. The biohacking is very important to me. So uh, sleep is a big issue for most people, and especially if you're doing this kind of work at late at night or you're just you know, a busy person. Basically, blue light, blue light spectrum, affects our ability to produce melatonin by something like 30%. Yeah, and we, blue, we just had Sean Stevenson just right earlier talk about sleep, so this is going to be good. I'm just, I'm just preempting you. And did he talk about blue light? He did not talk about blue light. Obviously, okay, he, cool. obviously he doesn't know squat about sleep then. No, I just don't want to. I don't want to be redundant. I'm just playing. Uh, yeah, no, so, drop the blue light on us. Okay, so blue light. It kind of makes sense. The sky is blue, right, during the day. So blue light spectrum signals our body that it's time to be awake, and it actually will increase cortisol, which is our stress hormone. So blue light is in most artificial lighting, not not incandescent, but like LEDs, halogens. Those have blue light spectrum. Your computer screen, your iPhone, your Kindle, your TV, all of those have blue light spectrum. And really, you don't want any blue light for like an hour before you go to bed. And while I could sit here and say to everybody, you know, just sit and read a book by candlelight before you go to bed and think I'm crazy, the better solution is to get an $8 pair of blue-blocking sunglasses on Amazon. And you can wear those for an hour or, you know, up to an hour before you go to sleep. And depending on your social situation, that may or not matter to you. It doesn't matter if you look like a serial killer when you're in bed if your wife is next to you. Sure. So... I'm telling you, the first night you try it, you'll sleep better. And once you put the glasses on, you can look at your iPhone and you can do your email and read your Kindle and watch TV if you want, and you will not get that blue light coming into your eyes. Wait, so what kind of goggles are these? Uh, blue blockers, basically. Oh, blue blo- like those, okay, so like those blue blocker like, goggles. Got it. Okay. Not, not, well, not goggles. I hope not goggles. That would that be would weird. Be, no, it'd be red. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but, well, they have, they have these ones on uh, on Amazon that are literally $8, and they're, they're wayfarers. So they look like the, the Tom Cruise risky business glasses. So uh, those are my, my glasses of choice. But it, it's amazing. And now, for me, if I put those on, I'm out in 15 minutes. It's like my body just knows, like, okay, there's no more blue light. It's time to go to bed. <laughs> I could have tried that this morning, or could have used that this morning. My stupid cat woke me up at like five, five, yeah, five or five thirty a.m. Stepping on my head, and then decided to scratch and knock things over and be generally a total a hole. And so I couldn't sleep, and I made the worst mistake ever, which is look at my phone. And yep. then you, you look at your phone, and then suddenly you go, "I'm totally awake right now." Yep, exactly. Because you have fake sunlight in your face. Yeah, and by the way, for any parents listening, this is a really good tip too. Because if you wake up in the middle of the night um, with the, you know the kids are crying or whatever, and you need to turn on the light, or you just need to whatever, throw on those glasses, and you'll be able to go back to sleep much easier. That's really good because that's one of the most annoying things ever. Is once I look at a screen or a phone, if I get a text, and what's really what really makes me want to tear fools' heads off is when I get like the six a.m telemarketer call and I forgot to turn my phone off for some reason and yeah like, hi oh oh sorry sir we thought you were in New York or whatever due to the area code and I'm like I will kill you it's 3 a.m. <laughs> or you know 6 a.m. or something and they're they're thinking I'll get him right in the morning and I'm just oh it's so annoying because then not only are you talking you're thinking someone's in the hospital you've got this phone in your face it's still dark outside wherever you are I need those gog- uh, those those non goggles, those wayfarers. I'll tell you what, I'm going to pick those up right now. You'll sleep better the first night you try. Oh, amazing! Thanks so much, man. Ari Mazel, LessDoing.com. We're going to link to your book, LessDoingBook.com. 
so that you can do less and live more. And uh, we'll link to your Twitter and the products that we mentioned on the show, as well as those websites to help you with the productivity and the email stuff. Thanks so much, man. Thanks for having me. All right, excellent show. You know, sometimes you don't know what to expect, especially with a guy like Ari. It can go, it can get crazy. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with the sleep hacking stuff as well as how he actually managed to cure himself. I feel like if I had something like that, I'm just not sure I'd have the discipline to do what he did, but he's a tough cookie, what can I say? And uh, the self-tracking, finding out which days are most productive in those times and leaning into those times of focus is especially useful, especially for guys like us who are always striving to level up. And I like the Boomerang app and the followup.cc. I use Boomerang personally, so I highly recommend it. It's linked up in the show notes, and I might have to grab those Aqua notes so I can take notes in the shower as well, but I'm definitely going to be ordering some blue blocker lenses ASAP. And I hope you guys enjoyed the rest of the show with Ari. If you did, share it, tweet that you listened to it, and uh, give us a shout-out. So I hope you guys enjoyed this one as much as I did, and I'll see you next time. This is an article by my friend Ethel K from MarriedManSexLife.com. It's a great one. It's called The Red-Yellow-Green Sexual Communication Tool. The Red-Yellow-Green Sexual Communication Tool. This is going to be an important post for a lot of couples. There's a ton of advice about whether you should or shouldn't be having sex on any given night. There's the default yes, fake it till you make it, no means no, push through her resistance, always be closing, don't push against her shields once they're up, pound her hard, and if nothing works, be outcome independent. Got all that? What I've realized is that some of the confusion is coming from me in that Jennifer and I, and this is Ethel and his wife, from the get-go were lucky enough to have mutually aligned assumptions about sexual communication. I've just assumed that everybody else communicated in the same way. So what this post is going to do is reverse engineer what Jennifer and I actually do in terms of a decision matrix about what we do on any given night. Not that every night we have sex, but that every night we make a conscious decision about having it or not. We don't wait to be in the mood to communicate about sex. The goal here is to give you some kind of shared language and avoid misunderstandings and lost opportunities for sex. For the most part, this is aimed at MMSL couples looking to build a better sex life. The assumption is that both of them want to work together to have a better sex life and connection. They may not feel ultra turned on by each other, but it's enough to want to work on things. It also assumes no medical issues at all interfering with the baseline desire. Also, Jennifer is the lower desire partner and I'm the higher desire partner. So most of the time, Jennifer is the one making a color choice and I'm more typically the one making an initiation attempt. Green. Green means that Jennifer is very sexually interested tonight. Basically, anything is up for grabs and I can push for an above average night of sex. This is the night of something more rough and dominant for me. Basically, the harder I push slash desire slash want her, the better her response. Green equals just fuck me. Go alpha. Yellow. Yellow means Jennifer's neither particularly turned on nor resistant to sex tonight. This can go one of two ways usually. One, a longer foreplay toward her warming up and ultimately her coming to orgasm and enjoying it for herself. Or two, her not wanting that but being willing to give me something like handjob, blowjob, or the quickie intercourse option. This is, from me, a softer initiation push than a green light. On a green night, I'm pushing her toward her maximum sexual response. On a yellow night, I'm initiating for the purpose to get sex and have a mutually pleasant sexual experience together. Yellow equals warm her up slash something for me. Go alpha slash beta. Red. Red equals Jennifer does not want anything sexual tonight. I don't push her at all about this. Not a damn thing. I usually offer some sort of care bear routine for her as well. Usually her red nights, she's sick or genuinely tired. Red equals no means no. Go beta. Whether it's red, yellow, or a green night, I don't get upset and complain about it to her. I remain outcome independent about it. 
For the most part, my initiation attempts are simply to discover whether or not it's a red, yellow, or green knight. Once I know what kind of knight it is, I tailor my approach to that. But until I make a move, I might not know it's a green knight because she might not tell me. Relationship Momentum in terms of the overall relationship momentum, imagine a 1 to 100 scale with 100 being the best possible and 1 being the worst possible. In the 71 to 100 range, you'll probably get a mix of greens and yellows and a handful of reds. In the 31 to 70 range, you'll mostly get yellow, but also a variety of greens and reds. In the 1 to 30 range, you'll mostly get red with some yellow thrown in, maybe a green if you're getting ovulation sex. Gaining Points Every night you make the correct call, i.e. she wants green and you act green, you get a plus one to your relationship. Same thing on yellow nights. She wasn't wildly into it, but you still had a good experience together. You get a plus one. On red nights, you don't force the issue at all. You get a plus one. Losing points. Every night you make the wrong call, you get a negative one to your relationship. She wanted just fuck me green and you were too soft on the approach, yellow, or ignored her, red, she wanted something sedate or just for you, yellow, and you tried to get her to have porn star sex, green, or didn't make a move on her at all, red. She didn't want anything at all on a red night and you tried to get a green or yellow response. Adaptive strategy, and this is why this is relevant. What happens with a lot of struggling couples is that they get advice to always green or always yellow or ignore red, just push yourself through it and act green. The result is that on some nights you get a plus one and on some nights you get a negative one and they all balance each other out. Thus, over the long term, the relationship doesn't get any better. If your relationship momentum score is a 30 and you go plus one, minus one, 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 you're still going to be stuck at 30 even though you're both working hard on your relationship. You have to have an adaptive strategy to heal a fragile relationship. You cannot force a sexual response from somebody who doesn't want to give one without risking seriously negative effects on your relationship. So when the relationship is down in the dumps, below 30, that may well mean a whole lot of not having sex at first. If she's not interested in sex with you, red, you must stop orbiting her and being angry about not getting porn star sex. Wah, why aren't you green? Or higher desire partner, so a final thought for the women slash lower desire partner, if you force yourself to have sex you don't want and hate every minute of it, in what bizarro world does that fix your relationship and make you love your partner more? I love this article by Ethel K. Go to marriedmansexlife.com and check out my interview with Ethel K. early on in the podcast here, uh, number 200 something something. Just do a search, A-T-H-O-L, and you'll find it here on the podcast website. Solid show as usual, if I do say so myself. Show feedback and guest suggestions. We rely on you guys to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let us know at jordanh at theartofcharm.com. Bootcamp details, that's our live training at theartofcharm.com. And that's also where you can find links to us on Twitter, Facebook, and other social media. If you're listening to this but you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher, then that needs to change. Getting our shows delivered free to your phone or computer is the best way to make sure you don't miss anything. You can do that by going to iTunes and searching for the Art of Charm podcast or by going to theartofcharm.com slash iTunes and clicking subscribe. That's it. You guys can also help us. If you subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher, give us a five-star rating and write something nice. We'll love you forever. Just go to iTunes.com slash theartofcharm and it'll take you right there. When you write us a review, it not only makes us feel proud, but it helps keep us in the ranks so that other people who can use this information can find the show more easily and get the credible advice that they need. It's also the best way to support the show other than purchasing training from us. So tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. 
So have a great week. Go out there and get social and leave everything better than you found it.